commentator called envy, the desire to deprive another of what he has. Envy wants what someone else has, not to enjoy alongside of them, but to enjoy at their expense. We might sometimes use the word in a good way, as in she was the envy of them all. But envy has no righteous correlate. God does not envy. He is jealous, but not envious. But jealousy relates to things that we possess. Envy is directed to what others possess. Envy is at the root of so much violence and theft. In fact, our entire status government is the product of envy. So is Marxism and the redistribution of wealth. Social media is often fueled by envy. And it's no wonder then that the Christian ministry and ministry leaders in particular need to be on guard against the tendency to envy. With the advent of the internet, any Tom, Dick, and Larry can weigh in on any topic on social media and attempt to to build themselves a platform. The tendency to want a platform is not new, but the speed and the ease that someone might attempt to build their own platform, at least to me, seems easier in our connected age. And usually, oftentimes, this begins innocently. They want to proclaim Christ. They want to draw more people in to hear the gospel. They want to reach people for Christ. But soon, you find that you're, you find yourself buying hundreds of thousands of copies of your own book so you can propel it to the New York Times bestseller. Of course, with the church's funds. You go from proclaiming the gospel according to Jesus Christ to proclaiming the gospel according to me. In our text this morning, the Apostle John gives us a snapshot of the moment in the life of a ministry leader where he has the opportunity to go from a servant of Christ proclaiming the good news to being a huckster, someone who is um, out for his own ministry. He could have let envy creep in, as it did with his disciples, taking his eye off of his goal and turning his goal into building his own ministry so that he could be an influencer like Jesus was. But when confronted by his own disciples with the success of what seemed to them a rival prophet, John the Baptist sets the record straight. And in that way, he provides a model for Christian ministry and ministry leaders who seek to minister in Jesus' name. Moreover, his response to his envious disciples points out to us the goal of Christian ministry and corrects the ways our ministry practices have moved away from that goal. So this morning, as you're able, please stand with me as we hear from the gospel according to John, beginning in chapter 3, verses 22. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. We have some mood music, it sounds like. We need to, I'll I'll preach loud. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, 
because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going out to him. And John answered, a a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we come this morning to this portion of your word, we ask, Father, for eyes to see the excellencies of Christ. May he increase and may I decrease. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our closest kinsman redeemer. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. John the Baptist, a successful reformer, influential speaker. He had developed a following and he never lacked for crowds coming out to marvel at his ministry. Hailed as the next Elijah, his public ministry was one for the history books. But then a new upstart begins to overshadow him. He preached a similar message. But there was something different about this man. His words seemed backed with some kind of persuasive power never seen before. He spoke with authority. Even some of John's own disciples began to follow this new rabbi, this Jesus from Nazareth. And it wasn't long before this Jesus' ministry eclipsed that of John the Baptist. Soon his disciples began to wonder, what's going on? Why are more people going out to Jesus to be baptized than to their rabbi, John? They clearly look with an envious eye at what God seems to be doing with that ministry across the street. In 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 the process of their envy, some dispute over purification arose between John's disciples and a Jew prompting them to question their master, whose baptism was more effective, theirs, John the Baptist, or Jesus. But John's response sets the record straight. In doing that, he gives the essential foundation for all of Christian ministry and ministry leaders. He clearly distinguishes himself from the Christ, and he shows that he enjoys his relationship to Jesus. And he is convinced of his purpose in his ministry, which is to make much of Christ. So as we unpack these three characteristics, we see not only a model for ministers, but an ideal model for all Christians. The first, notice that when when John responds 
to the question that his disciples ask him, he responds curiously with a proverb. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Oftentimes, the wisest answer to things that fall outside of your control is a profession of faith. It's not just a pious sentiment to rest in the sovereignty of God. John affirms that the growth of Jesus' ministry is God-given. No one can receive anything unless it comes from God, is what John is saying. And John affirms that the growth of Jesus' ministry, just as that's God-given, so is the decrease in his own ministry that also comes from the Lord. But, but don't hear in this doubt or, or any shred of envy. Hear aggravation. Hear a man who repeatedly has tried to distinguish himself from Christ. He reminds them, remember, I have told you this before. I am not the Christ. He is the Christ. I am the one who is called to bear witness concerning him. And he uses the wedding illustration to get his point across. Why are there so many movies about the best man falling in love with the bride? Why do we have those kinds of movies? I think it's because they're scandalous, right? That's treachery to the highest degree. And for some reason, we, our culture tends to like scandal and treachery. The best man occupies a privileged place of trust and loyalty. Stealing the affections of the bride is like stabbing the groom in the back. And there were actually ancient laws in Babylon that forbid the best man from ever marrying the bride. There was no legal way for him to do that. See, John is a man who knows his place. He knows who he is. He knows his mission. His mission is to point to Christ. And he couldn't do that if everyone thought that he was the Christ. He couldn't do that if he was trying to steal the affection of the bride away from her bridegroom. See, the hallmark of all Christian ministry in general and Christian ministers in particular is that they distinguish themselves from Christ. They say, I am not the Christ, and they make the hallmark of their ministry to point to him. It might sound simple, but the perennial tendency of mankind is to take what belongs only to God and to claim it for themselves. The history of the church is littered with men like John the Baptist, except they forgot to distinguish themselves from Christ. They forgot that their mission was to point to Christ, to lead the bride to the bridegroom whether because they wanted the bride's affection for themselves or they hated the bride and they wanted to mistreat her. Both come from a ministry or ministry leaders who have forgotten their place. Joel Osteen has made millions, I don't know, 40 million at least, off the church and has done it largely by giving the bride a therapeutic remedy to soothe her to make her feel comfortable and blessed he has preached a hell a self-help gospel and he's not alone many pastors have wandered this path peddling a christless christianity 
And the church was all too eager to hear it because it was kinder and gentler. And it didn't make them feel uncomfortable in their sins. So it's not just the friend of the bridegroom that must remember to point to Christ, but the bride herself must not flirt with the bridegroom's friends. We do this when we have itching ears and we find preachers who will give us what we want to hear. As evidence of this, take this as an example. Why is it so easy to pack a Christian conference on marriage or how to be fulfilled in your sex life? But if you have a conference on the Trinity or on the importance of the incarnation, you'll get five people. Well, the, the former is practical, right? We're, we want to know how to do things practically. And the Trinity is not practical. Nothing could be farther from the truth. But it's because we, it's because we want to hear what we want to hear. We don't want to hear what we don't want to hear because we don't want to be unsettled. We don't want our sins disturbed. And so we find people who will tell us what we want to hear. Paul said to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 11, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He had watched the church he had helped plant turn to the celebrity pastor, to the celebrity apostles of his day, the super apostles. They could speak so eloquently. They could speak for hours about nothing and it would dazzle you. You would be on the edge of your seat and you'd walk away and you would say, I have no idea what that guy said. What Paul was at pains to show is that they had seduced the wife of Jesus. He compared them to Satan, tempting Eve. And they did this by proclaiming another Christ. Woe to ministers who act this way, who don't point to Christ, but use the Christian ministry as a tool to get rich or to have power or to gain attention, to have a following. But the church is not innocent. You put up with it readily enough, Paul says. The bride of Christ must be on guard for ministers and teaching that present another Christ. We also do this by changing the mission of the church. So many churches have fallen prey to mission drift because they have forgot their first love. They have made social justice or politics or or some other program the mainstay of the church's ministry. They have made the body do what God has called individual members to do. We absolutely should care about our community. We should clothe the poor and feed the hungry. We should care about who gets elected. And we should have Christians running for those offices. But we should not make what individual Christians may be called to do obligatory for the church as a body to do. 
There is a difference between the institutional church and the individual members. When social justice becomes the mission of the church, what often gets sacrificed is the real mission of the church, which is the proclamation of the gospel, making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them everything that Jesus has commanded them so that then they can go out and be elected to office, so that they can go out and love their neighbor and work and pursue justice. But that's not the role of the pastor, and that's not the role of the institutional church. So many pastors spend all of their time, Monday through Saturday, commenting on the news. They have become political pundits, and they've forgotten their first love. They have allowed that to eclipse the ministry of the word and sacrament. The mission of Hope Church is to know, worship, and proclaim that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Lovingly bringing that message to our community. If we don't keep that the main thing, then other things will crowd it out. And pretty soon we won't be preaching Jesus We'll be preaching things about how to live your best life now. We need more men in the ministry like John the Baptist. Men who will be friends of the bridegroom, pointing the bride to him. We need men lovingly committed to own their place and their mission, not so driven by worldly ambition to make a name for themselves that they fail to point the bride to Christ her husband. We need churches that are committed to keeping Christ at the center of their worship and mission. We need a bride who is not so enamored with the friend that she misses the bridegroom. But John, he doesn't only distinguish himself from Christ, he also enjoys Christ. Notice the the end of verse 29. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John, in the place of the friend, enjoys his place as someone who stands and hears the voice of the bridegroom. And that hearing of that voice causes him to rejoice. It gives him great joy. And you get the sense that he's a man who not only wants to be in the presence of Jesus, but delights to be there. He's like the psalmist who exclaims in Psalm 84, 1, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And then in verse 10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Joy is found in the presence of the Lord. The closer proximity we have to Him, the more our joy increases. You might think, well, that's fine for John the Baptist. I mean, he's right there. He can see Jesus. We can't get any closer to Jesus. He's in heaven. That's true. But that doesn't mean that we can't be in His presence. Notice that He rejoices at the voice of the bridegroom. Let me remind you that the Word still speaks to us fresh today in the Scriptures. The Word continues to speak and we hear His voice by reading and through preaching all by the Spirit. 
sad that he was going to go somewhere they could not follow, namely into death, Jesus encourages disciples with the promised sending of his spirit. It's okay. You can't follow me where I'm going, but I'm going to send my spirit to dwell with you. And my presence will be with you. And I will never leave you or forsake you. The spirit dwelling in the hearts of his people mediates that presence of Christ fulfilling his promise to never leave or forsake you. We talked this morning about the temple in the Sunday school. You are living stones that God is erecting together as the dwelling place of God. But we have access in a unique way to the presence of Jesus even more on the Lord's Day. When God calls us to worship, we are by the Spirit ascending into the heavenly places and joining with the church triumphant. All those saints that have gone before us are also this very morning lifting their voices in praise to God and we join with them. When the people of God gather in the name of the Son to worship, to hear His Word, to feast at His table, God is present with us in a unique way. As some may say, I can worship God anywhere. Maybe even better out in nature. His creation. True, you can worship God everywhere. But it's not true that it's the same. It's not the same. You should worship God throughout the day and everywhere you go. But it pales in comparison with the corporate worship of the church. Some of you are stuck at home because of health concerns. And we pray for you. And we long for you to be with us. And we know that you would if you could. And our hearts go out to you. But others, others miss corporate worship for trivial things. For travel. For sports. Or worse, for work. Now, it may be a work of necessity that keeps you from honoring the Christian Sabbath. And that is fine and well. We need doctors and nurses and firemen and police officers to continue to care for us while the rest of us rest from our worldly work. Others of you might be watching online right now and are not missing corporate worship for any of those reasons. But because it's just more convenient. I mean, what's better than doing church in your pajamas. But let me urge you to reconsider. You may be watching the service. And it might even be edifying. But it's not worship. Jesus says. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among them. Now don't neglect. The gathering together of the saints. While it is true. That Jesus will never leave you. Or forsake you. Your experience of his presence waxes and wanes based on your cultivation of your communion and fellowship with him. But what hinders joy most? Sin. When we turn towards sin, we turn away from God. We turn away from that communion and fellowship. Even though the Lord is still there, your preoccupation with sin leads to your loss of experiencing his presence leading to a loss of joy. Let me say something to you glass half-empty folks. Being one myself, we must really be cautious not to allow our temperament to rob us of joy. Sinclair Ferguson said, a melancholic disposition de facto creates obstacles to the enjoyment of assurance. Partly, 
because it creates obstacles to the enjoyment of everything. Right? We, this kind of disposition tends to focus heavily on what's wrong with the world. Usually these people make insightful comments about the problems, but we may struggle to find solutions. The key to cultivating joy is not focusing on the problem, but focusing on the source of our joy. Where does your joy come from? And that joy, that source of that joy is not disrupted by the problems in this world. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice in the Lord. That's the source of your joy. Paul was not one of those guys living a pain-free life, an affluent life. He suffered unimaginable hardships. He walked the length and breadth of the Roman Empire. I complain when I get in a car and it doesn't have lumbar support. He continues in Philippians 4 to exhort the church to pray amid anxiety for God supplies the peace and contentment that enables us to endure all things. If the source of your joy is stuff, then you will always need more to keep that joy up. If it's pleasure, it's the same thing. It's never quite enough. We are leaky vessels who hew out for ourselves vats that cannot hold water. But Christ offers us living water that is constantly fresh. The friend of the bridegroom rejoices to hear the voice of the bridegroom. But notice also that this leads to his joy becoming complete. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. But what completes his joy? Well, think about this. What is the job of the friend of the bride, the best man? To see that the wedding happens, that it takes place according to the plan. And in some cultures, it may even be to deliver the bride to the bridegroom for the nuptials and consummation. Now consider the context. John's disciples complain because Jesus is more popular and his disciples are baptizing more than they are. But it is this very thing that completes John's joy. He sees the whole scene differently. Rather than a competition, he sees a wedding. There's the bridegroom. He's the best man. The bride is coming to her bridegroom. Now his joy is complete because he sees them coming together. His delight is to see the bride come to Christ and to see his people come to him, believe in him, and follow him. That completes his joy. If you've ever led someone to Christ, you know that feeling. There is no other joy like it to see a sinner become a saint and experience the forgiveness of sins and peace with God and the promise of eternal life. It's like watching a wedding, that moment when the bride walks in and the groom sees her for the first time. Enjoying Christ leads to us wanting others to share in that joy. That completes our joy. We can't help but go out from ourselves and tell others. You need to to come to the bridegroom. John the Baptist knew his place as a friend of the bridegroom, and he enjoyed that place. It's not only is he clear that he's not the Christ and clear about the source of his joy, but it's also clear that he does it all so that Christ may increase. 
In other words, his ministry mission has been to make much of Christ. And what he is teaching his disciples is that the increase in Jesus' ministry and the decrease in his own is a design feature. That's how it was supposed to be. His job is to phase himself out of a job. He does that by making much of Christ. To make much of something means to give or ascribe a significant amount of attention or importance to something. To make much of Christ is then to give or ascribe a a significant amount of attention and importance to Him. It is to ensure that He increases both in how much you pay attention to Him and the level of importance you ascribe to Him. Firstly, this applies to Christian ministry. If our ministry initiatives are not designed to meet this goal, then we should not be doing them. Your session is intentional about not being a program-driven church. And this is not just that we are small, but that we want to keep the main thing the main thing. And so we emphasize that God builds His church through the ordinary means of grace. Word, sacrament, prayer, and the communion of saints. And further, we want to integrate across generational lines. We want older men discipling younger men and older women teaching younger women. We don't want our church to mirror a fractured culture that can't communicate across generational lines. The wisdom that comes with experience in life is needed to teach the faith to the next generation. So we don't want youth off in another place worshiping in their own style. And we don't want them being discipled, isolated from other generations. Secondly, what you make much of, that is what you pay attention to. You become like that. There is this principle in Scripture that you become like what you worship. We see this clearly in in Psalm 115, verse 4, as the psalmist describes their idols. He says, Their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but they do not feel. Feet but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Worship is formation. And therefore, what you worship will form you. Or I could say it like this. What you make much of, you will come to resemble. And this is why rooting out anything that might claim your loyalty or allegiance in place of Christ is so important. As Calvin said, our hearts are idle factories. They're constantly producing things that take the place of our making much of Christ. And sometimes they are legitimate, good things, gifts of God. But gifts can very quickly be turned into idols. Your wife or husband is a gift, but if they take the place of Christ, then they become an idol. The same with children, houses, cars, careers, hobbies, and on and on. We seem best at taking God-given things and turning them into idols we worship. The gifts of God gave were never designed to be ends in themselves. This is the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes. I think C.S. Lewis said it best in God in the Dock. He said, quote, The woman 
who makes a dog the center of her life loses. In the end, not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. The man who makes alcohol his chief good loses not only his job, but his palate and all power of enjoying the earlier and only pleasurable levels of intoxication. It is a glorious thing to feel for a moment or two that the whole meaning of the universe is summed up in one woman. Glorious so long as other duties and pleasures keep tearing you away from her. But clear the decks and so arrange your life, it is sometimes feasible, that you will have nothing to do but contemplate her and what happens. Of course, this law has been discovered before, but it will stand rediscovery. It may be stated as follows. Every preference of a small good to a great or a partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice is made. Apparently, the world is made that way. You can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. End quote. See, the very goal of our sanctification is to have Christ increase while you decrease. To see Christ formed in us, to see our lives better and more fully conformed to Christ and His perfect life. But this only happens when we attend to Him and make Him the most important object in our life. And paradoxically, when we make much of Christ, the world actually becomes enjoyable. When you make much of Christ, when Christ is at the center of everything, when He is increasing and you are decreasing, only then can God's gifts be enjoyed. For it is in the losing of your life that you find it. It is in the dying that you will finally live. John the Baptist provides an ideal model for Christian ministry and ministry leaders to emulate. He is a man who knows and finds great joy in his place. A place of making much of Christ. And even if you're not called to be a ministry leader in the church, that does not mean that you don't have a ministry. You do. Husbands, you are the resident theologians in your home. Washing your wives with the word and hopefully pointing them to Christ in word and deed. Fathers and mothers, you are to be instructing your children in the faith. Men and women, you are to be actively pursuing discipleship, both to sit at the feet of someone older and to mentor someone younger. In all these various relationships, we are to ensure that in all we do, we make much of Christ. We make much of Christ by enjoying Him and by making that joy complete by sharing Him with others. We make much of Christ when He increases and we decrease. The goal of Christian ministry is to make much of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and Father of our Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for the giving of your Son, the greatest gift, Father, that humbles us, that moves us, Father, that draws us to make much of Him. As we see how excellent He is, we are moved to exalt Him. There is no one greater. There was no one worthy of our admiration or our praise or our trust and obedience. Lord, conform us to Christ. Mold us and shape us to be more like Him so that all of our lives are spent 
like John the Baptist, delighting, rejoicing to stand and to hear his voice. And make our joy complete as we draw others into the sphere of that love. For we pray this in Jesus' strong name. And amen. Saints, before we come to the Lord's table.